Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. everyone as always i am darren carp and i'm here with my husband john thrasher that's right i am a husband uh to you're darren. a wife as well you're a wife as well yeah, i'm a wife i'm mom first and foremost let's not forget that right well that's what i that's what i really meant to say but it's and this is a marriage what? is what we've learned it's a commitment it's a monogamous relationship <laughs> And we're both so heterosexual, you can't stand it. But you know how I often talk about, uh, you know how I often talk about Dan Savage and yeah. Savage Lovecast, which I listen to so much. A great podcast. So he's married yeah. to this guy. I love that podcast. And he's married to this guy Terry. And whenever he describes Terry, he's like my husband. And mm. I can't say it any other way now. Yeah, of I course not. That's the. By the way, this is a great example of just the way podcasts impact us. You know, like as listeners and as hosts, it's like. You know, all it takes is one podcaster to say sussy, and the next thing you know, yeah, you know, and then it's you know, then yeah. it's everyone's being sussy around us, and it's <laughs> yeah, just full of sus, exactly. Where there was a susterhood of the traveling pants, of the traveling <laughs> drink today. Um, well, let's let's kind of get right into it, although I know you have to kind of do a mea culpa. At I know, the start, let me so. just mention, go ahead, yeah, last week we we did our um Patreon live stream and uh, we talked about that, at, you know, at length. And I told Krista, you know, I signed my first Funko Pop. It's a grumpy Pikachu. And I told Krista the winner I would send it last week. And then it fell. This is how sad my life is. It fell off of my desk. And it wasn't within eyesight anymore. And I completely forgot about it. So so you dropped it and then you just <clears throat> left it and forgot about it? Yeah. Like it would. Well, I didn't drop. Like, oh. I don't remember it dropping. But essentially, yeah, I forgot about it. So I was cleaning like two days ago. And I'm like. Oh my god! Like I haven't sent this out to her yet. So Krista, if you're listening, wow. I have I have your Funko Pop. It's gonna be in the mail soon. And by the way, any of you guys, if you're listening and want to win a Funko Pop from me or Darren or whomever in the future, you can sign up uh, to be a Patreon member, and you'll be joining our live streams where we do games and giveaways. That's my little well, Patreon plug. Krista, I'm going to apologize for the assholiness of my co-host here because, Krista, you're the one that does, I think it's, I don't know if it's needlepoint. I don't know yeah. the correct terminology. I'm, I'm running yeah. out of, it's something like that. Uh, crochet, right. something like that. Uh, are awesome shaken and disturbed things, and you sent it to me, and then John got all butthurt, and he was like, oh, I, I was... want one. And she was like, I have one for you. And then you don't even send her a grumpy you? I'm like, Like, Give what me good that. are you? I yeah. know, I know. You're absolutely right about that. I'm just very needy lately, but I'm looking forward You're to that because that little needlepoint thing looks so cool. We may have to post that somewhere, like on our group or something, if she's oh my god, okay it, with it's it. so freaking cool. Yeah. 
Um, Darren, really quick, let's get into the case in a second, but what are we drinking today? I will just mention right at the top, I'm having... Oh my God, John, if you're having Baileys or you're having no, the whiskey... I'm not, I'm not. Um, I am again going to be playing tennis after we record today, so I didn't want to drink anything right now because I don't want to be dehydrated. So I'm just having a zero sugar A&W root beer. That's all I'm having. Zero. Well, that is delicious. Who doesn't love a little root beer? Yeah. My brother was always loving root beer when we were kids. I, so I was very, I go in waves with alcohol. I remember I talked about this the other, last week that I was, or a few weeks ago that I was trying to get into gin. Yeah, that's right. And my girl, my girlfriend drinks a lot of wine. And I drink wine in college, although it was like the shitty Franzia sure. type yellow tail line. Mm-hmm. Just cheap wine. I'm not saying it wasn't good. I'm just saying it was cheap. Yeah, we were college and students. Sh- we're college students, and she drinks a lot of wine, and it's. All, I always think it's like sexy and nice to have like a bottle of wine at dinner, mm-hmm. you know. And I just, so I wanted to get back into wine. Unfortunately, it's like so fucking hot here, and it's like <laughs> thunderstorming and humid. So I was like, yeah. I need a cold drink because red wine lately has just been getting me so tired, mm. and it just doesn't make me feel good. And I actually got into Sancerre which is a lovely French wine, white wine, uh, that's nice and chilled. So I am having a glass of Sancerre today. Oh, look at you. Is it good? Do you like a it? Su- a sussy Sancerre. Yes, I do. <laughs> I yes, love- I do. I good. do like this Sancerre today, yes. Good. I love that sussy is our thing. I mean, let's keep it going. You know what I mean? Yeah. What? Listen, yeah. you get sus, I get sus. Let's get into, we let's all get get into sus. this week's sussy case you're sussy in the morning you're sussy in the evening you're sussy at dinner you're sussy at supper time yeah exactly when sussy's on the table (laughs) you can be sussy anytime anytime. this podcast is sponsored by better help is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals we all know the last year has taken its toll on us in so many different ways my friends and i have all used better help and we all really really love it and i'm not exaggerating we really do BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional therapy done securely online. And there's a broad range of expertise available which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in that uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline therapy, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today, so visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily. Visit BetterHelp.com Shaken, that's Better H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. So take advantage of the special offer for Shaken and Disturbed listeners. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com Shaken. George Sauter was born Giorgio Sodu in Italy in 1895, and in 1908, George emigrated to the United States and initially found work building railroads in Pennsylvania. I think that's around the time my family emigrated to the United States from Lithuania and Russia. So, oh, wow. 
maybe they knew each other. But uh, after living in the, after living in the states for a few years, George changed jobs, becoming a driver in West Virginia, and eventually started his own trucking company where he transported dirt and coal. Now, while in West Virginia, George met a fellow Italian immigrant, Jenny Cipriani. Uh, the two it could be Cipriani, right? It's probably yeah, Cipriani, it could be, it's but Italian. Yeah, whatever. So it's about the same. Just, yeah. Well, he met fellow Italian immigrant Jenny Cipriani. The two married, settled down in Fayetteville, West Virginia, a town with a large immigrant, sorry, a town with a large Italian immigrant population. Did you notice that in yes. school at all? In West Virginia, there's a lot of... Oh, yes. A, there's pockets of people. You know, Flushing has a really high population mm-hmm. of like a lot of Asian immigrants and stuff like that. Certainly pockets of, of uh, Greenpoint has Polish immigrants. My family, the Jewish people, were very much in Brooklyn. I didn't know this about Italians in West Virginia, yeah. but you found that. Yeah, Yeah, ahead. when I was, um, for those who don't know, I went to WVU. And I'm not exactly sure where Fayetteville is compared to Morgantown, West Virginia, where I went to school. But um lots of friends uh that i made at at wvu came from you know the southern parts or central parts of west virginia and a lot of them were italian and in fact one of my friends is so italian um that she is part of the um there's like this big italian festival that happens in her town and she kind of like runs it so yeah not only is there like an italian you know, uh, pocket of, of uh, people that still live there to this day, but they take it pretty seriously. They've got festivals. They take their heritage very seriously there. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, I think I think we all should. And I, I love Italian heritage. So that's actually that's interesting. I just mm-hmm. I always wonder how people and why people move to where they move. I know, you know especially that early on when when you're sort of kind of coming into this could have been family, friends, but it's just interesting. Now, the couple moved into a two story home with a timber frame just outside of town. George's trucking business was very successful, and he and his wife were able to start their very large family. Jenny gave birth to the first of their 10 children. Oh, my God. I I mean, that's a crime in and of itself. (laughs) I mean, like, I I can't. Uh, First of their 10 children in 1923 when the youngest was born 20 years later in 1943. So. This is very, she's a baby machine for like, I mean, yeah, now 20 years of her life. This is crazy. 10 kids between 20 years, you're pregnant every other year then, right? I mean, that's kind of what I'm guessing. Pretty much. And, you know, outside of having to breastfeed, you're you're probably constantly just, you know, in in the pregnancy cycle, if you will. Women are amazing. I will say this. My best friend. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. You speak for all women. So that's, that makes sense. Um, my best friends who are a married couple, um, they just had their first kid. And just seeing what she's gone through. I mean, obviously, I know other people who have had kids. But just being her best friend and through all of this, I've really come to learn what women go through when it comes to mm. not just the pregnancy, but, of course, what happens after the pregnancy, specifically postpartum, that affects so many women. Uh, it's just it's incredible. So good job, women. Yeah, my best friend, uh, you know, my goddaughter, mm-hmm. Mesa, um, you know, so my best friend, he, you know, I, I asked him, like, what's the biggest change? You know, outside of being a parent, like with Sharon, Sharon's his wife. Mm-hmm. And he was just like, I am so in awe of what women can do, yeah. specifically Sharon. And it's just like, it's it's just a great thing. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, women are obviously superior. But anyway. that's. I mean, listen, I agree. I'm not, I'm not even this. exaggerating. Yeah. 
And the Sodders became one of the most well-respected middle-class families in their rural area, and George held strong opinions on everything, especially politics and current events. Okay. I can kind of relate to this. <laughs> yeah, that's I fair, yeah. Strong, strong opinions on things. Now, although he'd been in the States for almost 40 years, George stayed very looped into the Italian political climate and was extremely and openly opposed to the fascist dictator Mussolini, mm-hmm. as am I. Now, some members <laughs> of the large Italian community in Fayetteville didn't care for George's views and in october of 1945 a life insurance salesman visited the solder home and threatened george for his political opinions warning that his house quote would go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed oh end God. quote if he continued to speak negatively about mussolini unfortunately i mean this happens very much so in other countries a lot of times you don't have the freedom to speak out in the government mm-hmm. thank god in this country we're able to speak out um publicly and with freedom of speech but i will say that among communities i mean especially this last year that we all had, what did we say over the holidays? Like, don't bring up politics, don't bring up religion, because people are so heated about these issues. Uh, Yeah, and also, I mean, remember, like you just said, it's October 1945, the very tail end of World War II. And, you know, politics were at the forefront of everyone's minds. And, you know, it's just, like you said, Darren, you put it so eloquently, like, thank God we have the option to speak about whomever we want, whenever we want about yes. this stuff. Yeah, I always say that no matter what, like the fact that we get to debate this publicly, I think just goes to show how far we've come, mm-hmm. especially compared to a lot of other countries. Oh, yeah. and so I think that's really important to kind of, I think the United States is exceptional in that way. L- listen but, to you, Miss Miss America over here. Well, I, I yes, <laughs> I am Miss United States. She's beauty <laughs> and she's grace. She's Miss United States. <laughs> But I digress. Well, another community member visited the Sodder house to look for work and warned George that his fuse box would fuse box, excuse me, would cause a fire someday. Mm. And the specificity of the comment surprised George, as he had recently rewired his home with an electric stove, and the electric company that he'd worked with had certified his home as safe. So that's pretty interesting. It's also, you know, fuse boxes, and I don't know what they were like in 1945, but. I'm not sure I would just know what your fuse box is like in your house. I mean, for ours, you'd have to come onto our property and, like, search it uh, in order to know that the fuse box would be kind of, you know, well, uh, cause an accident later on. Listen, no? the amount of guys that show up to my house and say, hey, I'd like to see your fuse box, you know, listen. Yeah, I mean, you love a fuse I box, I love a fuse box. Yeah, no, but that's a good it. point. I mean, I kind of took this information like, hey, you, you better shut up about Mussolini or your fuse box is going to start catching fire wink wink you know i don't know if that's what it is exactly but given all of the other kind of threats and circumstances around his political views like i just assumed it was something threatening but maybe i'm wrong right well i mean yeah that's a good point i mean i do think they're kind of related just considering he just got his home rewired and in the late in the weeks leading up to Christmas of 1945, George's sons had noticed a car parked outside near the main highway through town, and they had never seen the car before and found its presence a little bit strange, as though the occupants were watching the children as they returned home from school. Mm, I don't like that. By the way, whenever you image, or whenever whenever you image, whenever you imagine um, w- huh. what the car is, you know, like... Don't think of it as like, you know, a Tesla or something. We're talking 1945. Cars weren't even like very, very popular at that point. You know what I mean? Like you kind of had to be well, they pretty s- rich to have they certainly them. had, Right. They certainly had fewer types and fewer kinds of them. And I imagine you kind of knew, 
you know, who had the car. I mean, there were people who had cars, but it was like people who had cars in the neighborhood, what kind, you know, because yeah. back then, especially in suburbia in 1945, I imagine that like if you got a new car, it the was, whole block knew yeah. about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So something to keep in mind um, as we kind of yeah. move forward with this. Well, on Christmas Eve 1945, George and Jenny hung out in their home with their children. <gasps> John, 23, Marion, 17, George Jr., 16, Maurice, 14, Martha, 12, Louise, 9, Jenny, 8, and Sylvia, 2. <sighs> oh, my goodness. What a breath. That's so many people, I mean, so many kids. By the way. I mean, and I... And I think one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. We only mentioned eight. Yeah, that's now. right. There's not even all ten of them. What's going on here? Um, well, actually, there were some some people that were missing, including their eldest Joe, who had left home to serve in World War II, which I had just mentioned. So they've got one kid, Joe, that's serving in World War II, and they have a two-year-old. That's insane to me. I can't. You know, that's a lot. I, can't. I wonder what that must be like. Like, imagine that household with that many kids in it, like screaming at the top of their lungs. Uh uh-uh. uh. I mean, I, I, when my friends complain about one kid, I'm like, imagine being a single mom with three kids. Dude. My it's mom like, was that. I know exactly who, what that right. lifestyle and they don't have, was. And they don't have the snood mm-hmm. to like rock your baby to sleep here. Listen, I mean, this is just incredible. It's incredible. And, you know, not to go into this again, but it's like seeing, you know, I have a different respect for my mom as I get older, looking back at her being a single mom, because, you know, as you learn, as you, as you f- see your friends have kids and build families, you relate to it in a different way. And I look back at my mom, I'm like, how the hell did you do that? You're a superwoman. I'm so impressed by her. Um, well, anyway, around 10 p.m. Christmas Eve, Jenny told her kids that they could stay up a little bit longer um, as long as everyone finished their chores before going to bed. It's very typical, standard, middle-class type of American lifestyle, I would say. Oh, my here. God. I remember begging my mom <laughs> to stay up so I could watch Dawson's Creek when I was a oh kid. Oh, my like, God. Begging her. And, of course, she let me because yeah. how could she deny me Joey Potter? You know, right. I mean, yeah, exactly. What what network exactly. was Dawson's Creek on? I don't think I ever seen an I've I had ever seen a single episode of it. Do you remember? I want to say it's like CW oh, okay, or Pixel, like maybe like oh my god, it's going to be so bad. But I want to say it was that. That like, makes sense. I, because... Don't at me, anyone. I'm not googling this. <laughs> no, that Just, makes sense because yes. I don't remember having that channel or something, and like I feel like I missed out on a lot of cultural touchstones and pop culture well you were certainly missing my cultural touchstone yeah realizing i was gay when i was like oh my god joey potter yeah Yeah. well fair enough we all have our own journeys you know we we do well well at this point jenny took two-year-old sylvia and went to sleep george and the two eldest sons john and george jr were already in bed around 12 30 a.m on december 25th it's now christmas morning technically Jenny awoke to a ringing phone and got up out of bed to answer it. The call was from a woman whose voice Jenny didn't recognize. In the background of the call, she heard voices, laughter, and clinking glasses. The caller asked to speak with someone Jenny didn't know. Jenny told the woman she had the wrong number. The caller laughed Mm. and hung up. Jenny recalled thinking the woman had a weird laugh. 12.30 a.m., you get a call from someone you don't know. Especially, like... You know, nowadays, I mean, hell, I get 400 spam calls a Me fucking too. day. Me too. But 12.30 a.m. in the mid to late 40s, mm-hmm. where you have all your kids, woman you don't recognize, right. and then has a weird laugh. I'm shook. 
I'm very sh- I'm very disturbed, and that's very sus. Let's be honest. It's very sus. Well, investigators were able to track down the caller later and confirm that the call was a misdial. After hanging up, Whew. yeah, I know. After hanging up, Jenny noticed that the downstairs lights were still on and the curtains were still open. She thought this was odd, as the kids were usually good about closing up when they stayed up later than their parents to watch Dawson's Creek. No, that wasn't around of at course. the time, but yeah. It should have been, it should but have it been. wasn't. Jenny went yeah. down to find Marion Marion asleep on the couch, so she assumed her other children had gone up to their attic bedroom to go to sleep. Wait a minute. The, ten kids and they're in an attic bedroom? This is too much? I just like, it's a lot for me. It's a lot. I just, how do you keep track of all these how kids? How do you keep track? Well, around 1 a.m., Jenny was awoken again by the sound of something hitting the roof with a bang Followed by a rolling noise. I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> You're out. I'm, out. I'm this, out. I'm giving up on this This episode. is giving me alien abduction vibes, if I'm being completely Correct. honest. Well, she didn't hear anything else and assumed it was a bird, like, hitting the roof or something, so she went back to sleep. At 1.30, Jenny was awoken a third time, you know, every 30 minutes, by the smell of smoke this time. She went to investigate and found her husband's office on fire, Around the fuse box and the telephone line, she immediately went to wake up her husband. George then woke up his older sons, presumably so they could help get the younger kids out. Remember, the kids are in the attic, like worst possible place to be in the event of a fire. George and exactly. Jenny escaped the fire with with four of their children, Sylvia, the toddler who had slept with Jenny and George, 23-year-old John, 17-year-old Marianne, who had been asleep downstairs on the sofa, and 16-year-old George Jr., but the younger children who slept in the attic, Maurice, mm. Martha, 14 and 12, Louise, 9, and Jenny, 8, had been trapped upstairs, unable to escape their bedroom as the stairs were oh, on God. fire and the passage up or down was basically completely impossible to to escape from. This, is, this isn't very hard to get. I this know. This is just terrible. I mean, anytime it's with children, but just like being trapped inside someplace and having claustrophobia and i think that's also why i'm so anti-death penalty is like i couldn't think of something more claustrophobic i know than like i don't know it just feels so restrictive yeah it's just horrible but their eldest brother john stated in his first interview with investigators that he'd gone up to the attic to wake his siblings however he later changed his story saying he'd only been able to call up to them and hadn't ever actually seen them Hmm. this seems like a little bit of a discrepancy yeah. here now now because if they could if he went up to go see them why didn't he come down with them that's what I you remember. know how did they get trapped so the house's telephone had stopped working so marion went to a neighbor's house and attempted to call the fire department but in the meantime george desperately tried to rescue his children by climbing a wall of the house and smashing open the attic window slight, slicing open his arm in the process by the way i would he do the same s- thing you know if i'm a dad of co- yeah of course Anybody. I mean, my God, of course, for your children, absolutely. And he and his two sons thought that they could use a ladder to get in to save the kids, but it was gone from its usual spot, Uh, resting by the side of the house. So the ladder was actually later found at the bottom of an embankment, roughly 75 feet away. Okay, I don't like that. I don't like it. Mm-hmm. It also seems to be like this was definitely strategic in trapping mm-hmm. these kids up there in some sort of way. Why would a ladder be 75 feet away in an embankment? Like, yeah. who would leave that? No. And a barrel full of water that might have been used to try and extinguish the fire was frozen solid <sighs> in the December cold. George had two work trucks at his home and tried to pull them up to the side of the house and use them to climb into the attic window. However, neither truck would start 
even though they worked properly the day before. I mean, For two trucks not to start two. I mean, what is this final destination? I mean, how many things can go wrong? Have you ever seen The Strangers? The Strangers. Is it a yeah, horror the one movie? With Tyler. Yeah, no, yeah, the, the one that came out when we were in like college, oh, maybe like 2006. Maybe. And they wear masks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With and the they masks. just kind of like, and she like, you know, they're home. They're like trying to have this like romantic weekend in the cabin, you know, um, and you know they're in the middle of the woods and it's night out and they're trying to like enjoy themselves after I guess like a failed engagement, whatever. And this woman just knocks on the door. She's like. Is Tamra home? And I'm like, I'm done. I'm never oh opening God. the door fucking again. Like, I'm out. Um, I'm out. This is, I'm out. So I'm just, I'm tapping out of this. You know what, case, Darren? But- really quickly, while we're talking about this case, I am going to find that clip. Oh, my God. I'm going- I think it's Tamra. It might be. I think it's like, Tamara. Whatever is it home? is. Yeah. I'm going to try yes. to find it. I'm going to insert it right here. Okay, great. And I hope everyone likes uh, that little uh, extra spice of today's episode. Keep going, Darren. It's definitely a little spice. Mm-hmm. Uh, not fishmonger spice, which I saw someone post uh, on our Facebook. We're right? not even going down yeah. that road. We'll get there. Yeah. We'll get there in our end okay. tomorrow. But anyway, completely out of options, the remaining family members had no choice but to wait outside their home for the fire department. Yeah. And as the family was, and I can't imagine with these children, <sighs> like, were they screaming? Like, the whole thing is just... Well, can I, I don't want to interrupt again, but I want to, because I can relate to this. When I was in, I want to say sixth or seventh grade, one of my best friends lived down the street from me and their house caught fire and I knew it caught fire. It was like the middle of the night. I saw the, the fire department and everything. And I will never forget. I walked down to their house in the middle of the night. I, I was only like, what, how old are you? Like 10, 12, 13, somewhere in there. And I walked down to their house and I was just sitting at the curb of the house, like down, you know, the curb down the block. And no one knew where they were. No one knew or no one was telling me. I think people knew, but no one was telling me. I was just a kid from the neighborhood. There was obviously an emergency happening. And I will never forget this image. And I and I look at the exact curb every time I drive by it now, even at my age. And I just sat there and stared at this house on fire. The bedroom where we, we I'd spent most of my time like hanging out and, and with my friends was completely engulfed in flames. And I just remember thinking, oh, my God, like, are they in there? And I was just bawling my eyes out, not to be a huge downer, but thank God everyone escaped from, from that house and no one was. Oh God, that must have been so traumatic. For it you. Was. I mean, traumatic for the family. I'm just saying for you, that must have been very traumatic. It was. It was beyond traumatic because I had never experienced something like that. And like not knowing if you're staring at a burning room that has your friend in it. I mean, it's, oh it's the worst possible scenario. And luckily like hours later, they must have gone somewhere, I'm sure to the hospital or something. And, uh, my, my friend that that survived it comes running down the street at me, and it was like this like montage from like a movie, and we like ran like into yeah, like we fields. ran into yeah. each other's arms, and then I'll never forget oh. we sat outside my house because she stayed the night at my house that night, and we ate gogurts, and that was that moment. That was the, that was wow. the moment that happened. Yeah, and I just want to say we're not sponsored by gogurt, we but aren't, we be. but we should be after that heartwarming, touching story. By the way, everyone survived, I mean, and everything's great, so don't worry. Well, that's, I mean, that's amazing to hear. Wow, what a traumatic experience. It was, yeah. Back to this traumatic experience. As the family was trying desperately to rescue the children, another neighbor saw the fire and made a call to the fire department from a nearby tavern. However, no operator responded. What is going on here? Because isn't that the point? Right. 
fire and police departments, but the neighbor then drove to town, found the fire chief, F.J. Morris, to alert him to the fire. Chief, Mo- and by the way, this must go to show like how small the damn town is if yeah. you know you can find the fire chief. By the way, I no looked cell phones at- <laughs> back then. <laughs> That's a great point. I hadn't thought about it like that, but I looked it up briefly while you were talking, and it is a very small town near Beckley, West Virginia, which is a popular uh, city in, in West Virginia. For anybody who's listening and curious. Well, Chief Morris initiated the Fayetteville Fire phone tree, a system where one firefighter called another who called another until they'd accumulated enough of a crew to take out the fire. Obviously, there's no, like, group call with FaceTime here, you know? Yeah. You need the phone tree. My parents kind of had that when I was a kid growing up. Uh, You know, one parent calls the next parent. Yeah. Whatever. But the fire department was understaffed due to World War II and Mm. relied almost entirely on a volunteer staff. Chief Morris also stated that the delay was partially due to the fact that he was unable to drive the fire truck and had to wait for someone who could drive it to be available. Okay, wait. What? How are you going to be a fire chief and not know how to drive <laughs> the a fire, fire truck? The fire truck, right. I mean, how, what, are you going to be seems... a pilot but not know how to fly the plane? Come on now. Well, wait. Well, that's, I mean, like, I don't, I assume every fireman can drive the fire truck. Maybe that's a stupid assumption on my part. If there's anyone out there who knows firefighters or has been through maybe the chef training course, but but this yeah. this this seems weird mm-hmm. to me. Now, although the fire, but again, it is maybe a volunteer. I don't know. Yeah. Now, although the fire department was only two and a half miles away, the firefighting crew didn't arrive at the solder home until almost 8 a.m., which what? by the time that happened, you know, the house was just completely destroyed. Remember, they had a timber, like, A-frame house. Right. And once on scene, there wasn't anything for the fire crew to do besides dampen down the heat of the smoldering rubble and sift through the ashes. Mm. And by 10 a.m., Chief Morris told George and Jenny that the crew hadn't found any bones or remains, as would be expected if their children had burned to death in the fire. However, Chief Morris told the Sodders that he believed the children had died in the fire and suggested that perhaps the blaze had been hot enough to burn their bodies completely. Jeez. I'm so sorry. Uh, this I know. Is many trigger warnings out there, but a state police investigator later inspected the remains of the home and cited the cause of the fire as faulty wiring. Now, the local coroner also conducted an inquest, uh, which concluded faulty wiring as the cause of the fire. One of the mm. jury members was the man who had visited the Sodder home, threatening George with the idea what? that his home would be burned down and his children killed if he kept speaking negatively about Mussolini. Oh, what a perfect timing. What a perfect scenario for the, one of the jury members to be that guy. Seems seems very prescient that he would know Yeah. That. Well, the Sodders never rebuilt their home. Instead, they covered the site with five feet of dirt and preserved the area as a memorial to their lost children, which has to be oh, heartbreaking. God. Death certificates for all five children were issued on December 30th, 1945, just a few days after this went down, and a funeral was held on January 2nd, 1946. George and Jenny were too bereft to attend the funeral. However, all of their surviving children were able to attend. I find that a little bit interesting. You know, like, these are your kids. Come on now. Right, but I could also understand, like, yeah. you know, they say, and I, we're not parents, but they say the hardest thing to go through is watching your kid die. Oh, before you. Yeah, like they, yeah. they say that's literally like mm-hmm. it's unbelievable pain. And I imagine that. I know you have ten, but I imagine if you're losing, yeah, even anyone, yeah. but let alone half your brood in this fire. Uh, yeah. God, and I wonder if George, to some extent, maybe felt like it was his fault. Just because of all, like, I'm sure there was so much tremendous guilt. I don't know. I just, I sort of can, I kind of understand just something being too hard to kind of deal with. I do get that. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, after everything had settled, the remaining family members began to suspect that the children might still be alive. Wait wow. a minute. Okay, because then you're thinking, well, the ladder wasn't there, but was it removed before? Like, why was it removed? Did somebody climb up it before? Now I'm interested. Now this is getting crazy. Yeah. Well, George. And remember, the brother changed his story. So That's maybe there's right. something more here that we don't know. Well, George disputed the fire department's assertion that the fire's cause was faulty wiring. He had recently had his home rewired and inspected, and all was found to be in perfect working order. If the fire was really due to an electrical defect, why had the Christmas lights stayed lit throughout the early part of the fire when the power should have gone out? That's a good point. Wow. By the way. Great point. Take a drink, George. Take a drink, take George. Take five. Why hadn't the home phones worked? Well, a telephone repairman investigated and found that the line hadn't been burned in the fire, but cut by someone who had climbed up the 14-foot pole. And I wonder if they climbed up a 14-foot pole with a with ladder. With a ladder that was found in an embankment. Well, neighbors identified a man who had been seen stealing a block and tackle from the Sodder's property just before the fire. The, that man was arrested. The man admitted to the theft of the block and tackle, which I don't even know what that is, by the way. It was just part of our research, but um, we should probably I'm figure that out. Yeah, know. do that and we'll come back to you. And to cutting the phone line, so although he stated he had believed it was a power line when he cut it, Okay, so let me get this straight. You're climbing up a thing to cut a power right, line. Right, you're still cutting a fucking line. What are you doing? Like, are you? So your intention was to cut the power line. Oh. Wouldn't you get it? Wouldn't you get electrocuted? Do you have an update? Also, a block and tackle mm -hmm. is a mechanism consisting of ropes and one or more pulley blocks uh, okay. used for lifting yep. or pulling heavy objects. Mm. And remember. Remember the wife at least heard something on the roof that she thought oh, was, you right. know, a big kind of thud. So just keeping things in mind. That's here. right. I forgot about that. Well, the man denied having anything to do with the fire. We don't have any identifying records of this man in our research, his arrest, or why he would have wanted to cut the power line to the Sodder's home. So, again, as Darren just mentioned, what hit that roof at 1 a.m. On, on Christmas morning? A bus driver passing through town. Was it Santa? Was it Santa? Because um, it's been Santa. Could it have okay. been Rudolph and the and his nine and the eight nine, eight reindeer? I don't know. Late on Christmas oh Eve, God. stating, um, the, the, I'm sorry, let me redo this. The bus driver passing through town late on Christmas Eve stated he'd seen some people throwing quote balls of fire. What at the Sodder home. Is this the Wicked Witch of the West now? You know, is it... What is ha a ball of fire? <sighs> is this Quidditch? What are we doing? What is this? Is this There's snake? a lot of, like, fantasy going on here. It's crazy. Yes. Well, a few months after the fire, Sylvia found a small object nearby. George described it as looking like a pineapple bomb hand grenade. The family believed, in spite of the fire chief's findings, that the blaze had started on the roof of the home, although there was no way to prove that. Why wouldn't the two work... And also, why wouldn't the two work trucks start, though they had worked well the day before? Like, this is a lot of... Right. There's a lot of questions Yeah. Here. The family believed someone had tampered with them, although there were uh, there was speculation that they could have accidentally flooded the engines while trying to start them in a hurry. Um, but both of them? Like, that just seems crazy. Yeah. The odds of that happening are very small. And, uh, you know, like we said, why had the ladder moved and who had moved it to the embankment? And, of course, the the main question here is, like, where were the children's bodies? Because even in a Wait, fire... Like not a bone? Not a bone yeah. was found? So right. we got some inter interesting info here that was um, straight from Megan, our amazing researcher, who will be on a show in a, in a future episode. 
Um, but we wanted to share some information about this type of stuff because it's very interesting. So according to firefighterinsider.com, which is a cool website I might visit after this, a standard house fire can reach temperatures of up to 1500 degrees Fahrenheit. It will always be hottest at the ceiling. You know, heat rises. Like in the attic. Exactly. However, it can still easily be a few hundred degrees or more at floor level. Now, according to FuneralWise.com, complete cremation of a body takes roughly two hours at temperatures ranging from 1,400 to 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So, okay, so to be fair, yeah. considering the fact that the fire department didn't come until 8 a.m. and That's the fire true. in theory was started in the 1.30-ish a.m. range or so, they could have been cremated. Yeah, absolutely. And... Okay. According to Meg, who watched a bunch of cremation videos, by the way, while researching this case, which, of course, Megan would do. Um, of course, Megan. Megan doesn't regularly. Not just for this case. Like, I watch Marvel fan theory videos. Megan watches cremation right. videos. Yeah. But Correct. even in modern day cremation, human bones need a lot of help to go from being skeleton shaped to basically being dust. I mean, think about what is right. what a bone is. I mean, it's not going to be easy to just you know, vanish into thin air, literally. So crematory workers have to manually break apart the cremated bones with tools that look like gardening hose. Uh, It takes force and a lot of smashing, not, you know, not to be too crude here, but to make, you know, a skull not look like a skull anymore or your bone, you know, your femur to not look like a femur anymore and really turn it into what we know is the end product. Yeah. Into an end product of a uh, cremation. Um, After the process is complete, a crematory worker goes in and picks out any remaining metals, so jewelry, dental fillings, medical implants, etc. It seems very unlikely that not a single remain would have been found of the five bodies that were in the attic, attic, even in a really hot fire that burned for hours. The odds of finding nothing just seemed astronomical. So, well, and let me and let me just say, yeah. like when you were talking about kind of you know what, what like the cre- cremators kind of do, the crematory workers kind of yeah. do when they have to smash the bones. That's under like optimal cremation conditions. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about like in an oven being incinerated at a constant even temperature, a hundred percent around. A fire isn't right. going to do that, you know. Totally. Windows could have been open. There obviously were things in the house, so well, it does seem very unlikely that that nothing would have been found and also you know we were talking about the attic it's like you know let's be let's be real here if a house is on fire the first thing that usually goes right is like the the ceilings and the floors they kind of like all implode on top of each other as they lose their weight my assumption would be if you're in the attic or anything is in the attic it's probably dropping down floors so it's not even at the probably the hottest part of the house so to speak right so there's that to consider as well so there's lots of different things about arson and fires to consider here but at the end of the day even in 1945 there were no bodies recovered well the solder strongly suspected arson again remember the threats that we talked about at the top of the show which led them to believe that their children may have been abducted by the Sicilian Mafia in retaliation against George's loud bad-mouthing of Mussolini and the fascist Italian government. Jenny became obsessed with experimenting with fire and its effect on remains. She conducted experiments on different sorts of animal bones, like beef, chicken, pork chops. She'd light them on fire and try to reduce them to unrecognizable cinders. 
And I mean, I just think about like being a family member and trying to find, if anything, justice, but especially like if they're still alive, you know, like I would be doing the same thing. I mean, look at, you know, what, what are your resources in 1945? You got to do stuff like this. A crematorium employee spoke with her, informing her that bones remain after bodies are incinerated for two hours at 2000 degrees and noted that their house was only ablaze for 45 minutes. I mean, that's true. Like, the fire department doesn't even get there till 8 a.m., but this house burned down pretty quickly. Yeah, exactly. Right. And I imagine, you know, 1945, you know, it's not a mansion here. I mean, maybe, but it's a tinder kind of frame here. So it's not hard for that to kind of go up in flames. And the Sodders erected a billboard near their destroyed home with photos of their five lost children, offering a $5,000 reward for any information leading to them to being found. John, can you convert 1945 $5,000 into today's? Yeah, keep going. I'll do that. I'll do that in the back. Yeah. Okay, well, the billboard remained up until Jenny's death in 1989. There were witnesses who claimed to have seen the children after the start of the fire. One neighbor who would watch the blaze from across the road claimed to have seen them inside a passing car as the fire was still burning. A woman at a rest stop between Fayetteville and Charleston, West Virginia, said she'd served them breakfast the morning after the fire and had noticed a car with Florida plates at the rest stop parking lot around the same time. Now, remember, there was that sussy car that was outside oh, right. uh, of the house kind of monitoring or what they thought was monitoring the children. Yeah. Now, another woman at a hotel in Charleston, West Virginia, claimed to have seen four children who looked like the ones pictured in the paper a week after the fire. Wow. Her statement reads, quote, The children were accompanied by two women and a man, all of Italian extraction. I do not remember the exact date. However, the entire party did register at the hotel and stayed in a large room with several beds. They registered around midnight. I tried to talk to the children in a friendly manner, but the men appeared hostile and refused to allow me to talk to these children. One of the men looked at me in a hostile manner. He turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian. Immediately, the whole party stopped talking to me. I sensed I was being frozen out, and so I said nothing more. They left early the next morning. Now, the Sodders hired C.C. Tinsley, a private investigator, to look into this odd case and see if he could help locate the missing children. Tinsley uncovered some rumors around the town that despite his claim that there were no remains at the scene of the fire, Chief Morris had found a human heart at the site, which he packed into a box and buried in secret. A human heart? No bones, but a human heart? And the fact that he packed it into a box and then buried it, I mean... Aside from that, didn't tell anyone. Yeah, and aside from that being like disturbing, what is the motive behind that? You know what I mean? Well, Chief Morris had confessed this discovery to a minister. The minister later confirmed this rumor with George, and George and Tinsley confronted Chief Morris with the allegation. Morris confused was confused by this and agreed to show the men where the heart was buried. Now, the three dug up the metal box and brought the heart to a local funeral director to ascertain exactly what it was. And the funeral director examined the contents of the box and concluded that the heart was, in fact, a fresh beef liver that had never been exposed to a fire. Oh, my God. That's... You know, so if you've ever had liver, I could see why someone would think that. But uh, it seems a little weird that they would find fresh beef liver when an entire house is incinerated. Right. That's very... It kind of gives me, like, a witch vibe for some reason. Like, witchcraft. It's... Sussy. It's sussy, okay. guys. Everything everything about this. By the way, I looked it up. $5,000 in 1945 is worth. What do you think, Darren? Let's do a Price is Right. Um, in today's dollars, that's worth 
mm, I'm gonna be so off by this ninety eight thousand dollars. Not too far off. You're over though, so you wouldn't be able to come up on stage. It was seventy two thousand. <laughs> a little bit better. Seventy five thousand four hundred and seventy one dollars and eleven cents, according to. I mean that's that's you know I mean listen especially back it's a then, lot yeah it's a lot of money yeah. Well, later more rumors ran through the through town that Morris admitted to intentionally spreading the initial heart rumor in hopes that George would uncover it and be satisfied at finding some remains of his missing children and finally Uh presume them dead. So there we go. We have a little bit of a, of a motive. Okay. Well, chief Morris is sussy and he's in on this shit. Yeah, no, for sure. Then in August of 1949. So a few years later, George was able to persuade authorities to undertake a new search of the site of the fire. The new search was extremely thorough and uncovered a number of items that were missed in the first search including a dictionary that belonged to the children Mm. and some coins i mean there's something so innocent Mm. about a dictionary it like kind of tells me that like they're learning words they're learning how to speak they're so young they're innocent i don't know maybe that's just me no i mean it's it's really sad i mean yeah I had a dictionary growing up, and now I have my iPhone. I, and now I have uh, my Amazon Echo, where I literally ask Correct. it to define things all day long for me sometimes. Exactly. Well, either way, there were also several small fragments of bone that were uncovered, which were sent to a specialist at the Smithsonian Institute for inspection. The specialist's findings were very strange. He confirmed that fragments were human lumbar vertebrae, all from the same person. Now, this guy also said that, quote, since the transverse recesses are fused, the age of this individual at death should have been 16 or 17 years. The top limit of age should be about 22 since the centra, which normally fuse at 23, are still unfused, end quote. Now, that's a lot of, yeah, a lot of science talk, but the idea here is that these bones don't seem to really line up with the people who were supposed to be in the attic that day. Right. So given right, the age, exactly. yeah. So sorry, given the age range, it was determined unlikely that any of the bones were from the missing children, as the oldest was only fourteen at the time. Although it's possible his bones were matured enough to appear on the low end of that range, that's certainly a possibility. You know, only two years out from that suspected range. Sure. Well, the specialist also noted that the bones showed no signs of being exposed to fire and commented that it was indeed very odd that those bones were the only ones uncovered at the site, as a wood fire of such a short burn time should have left full skeletons of all the children behind. Again, it was only 45 minutes. Yeah. Right. And by the way, like, you, you know, even for the time frame, like given all the circumstances about, you know, where, frankly, American society was... You know, we hear about this all the time. People die in fires, sadly, as as sad as it is, but usually remains are found. And, you know, so this isn't really lining up with even modern day stuff here. Well, the report concluded that in all likelihood, the bones found had come from the dirt that had been bulldozed over the site to create the memorial plot. That's exactly what I thought. Interesting. Right. So now right. these were basically bones that were being displaced from from the the dirt that was covered. Something else. Yeah. Exactly. Well, in 1950, West Virginia held two hearings about the case, after which Governor Pattinson and Police Superintendent Burchett informed the Sodders that the case would be closed at a state level. The FBI ruled that it had jurisdiction as the case was a possible interstate kidnapping. However, they dropped the case two years later. 
After the disappearance was officially dropped, the family printed flyers with pictures of the children offering $5,000, then $10,000 rewards for information leading to the discovery of their whereabouts or anything that would have led to actual closure of this case. Now, assuming that $5,000 is worth $72,000, you know, in modern day We almost got $150,000, you know, prize here. In which case, my guess, I would have been asked up to come to prices, right? That's true. It's just that I guessed the wrong conversion. (laughs) That's true. You're right. Rework it. Exactly. There you go. Got to work on that one. Um, You know, but also here's something else to think about. I mean, that's a lot of money. This family was clearly, uh, you know, had money. I think probably people in the town were probably aware of that. And you have to wonder well, if yeah, that plays a part. Yeah, remember his business was doing well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, his business was doing well. So maybe it was a little bit like, you're going to make fun of the ancestry with Mussolini and you're mm-hmm. going to be rich. Like, fuck you a little yeah. bit, you know? Yeah, totally. Well, these publications offering reward money, of course, drew in all sorts of tips from around the country, which George single-handedly followed, traveling around speaking to potential witnesses and people who claimed to have leads. Nothing ever came of these tips. And you have to think, you know, like this is, again, 1950s, barely, you know, telephones are around and that's pretty much it. It's not like you can jump on the Internet and do a full investigation here. So it takes a lot more time back then than it does now to to follow these tips. In 1968, Jenny went to check the mail and found an envelope addressed to her. It bore no return address, but was postmarked in Kentucky. Now, inside was a photo of a man in his 20s. On the back was a handwritten note that read, Louis Sauter, I love Brother Frankie, Illil Boys, A90132 or 35. Hmm. Now, the man in the photo did represent, sorry, the man in the photo did resemble their son, Louis, who was nine at the time of the fire, would have been in his early 30s in 1968. Ugh, so weird. George and Jenny hired another private investigator to go to Kentucky and try to track down any leads regarding to the photo and cryptic message. The PI never reported back to the family, and they were unable to locate him again. That's interesting. Wow. Now, George continued to appeal to the media, giving interviews about his search until the end of his life. And in 1969, George spoke with the Charleston Gazette Mail, vowing to continue his search, stating, quote, We only want to know. If they did die in the fire, yeah. we want to be convinced. Otherwise, we want to know what happened Of to course. Them, which- of course. And I think that's how we feel. George passed away, unfortunately, in 1969. After his death, Jenny stayed in their home and dressed in mourning black for the rest of her life mm. until her passing in 1989. After her death, her children finally took down the billboard, offering a reward for information leading to the location of her missing children. The remaining Sauter children continue to speak publicly about their siblings' disappearance. Their number one theory being that the Sicilian Mafia was trying to strong-arm George into giving them money or into silence about Mussolini, which, again, Mm. if he was a prominent guy, Mm -hmm. you know, when he had money. Now, the siblings believe that the children may have been taken from the house by someone who knew about the plan to set fire to the home, telling the kids they would be safe if they came with them and left the house. These were young kids, so of course they're going to kind of believe this. And the siblings believed it's possible that their brothers and sisters may have survived and been aware of their family having survived the fire too, but intentionally avoided contact Mm. in order to protect them from the mafia. And on April 21st, 2021, the last Sauter child, Sylvia, who had only been two at the time of the fire, passed away at the age of 79. According to her obituary, Sylvia was unsurpassed as a wife and a mother. She filled her children's lives with scotch tape and construction paper, warm cookies, books, and unbounded love. And what a, what a like, interesting perspective on the obituary itself. You know, like, warm cookies, books, it's such a, t- a sign of the times when it comes to that type of stuff. What a 
horrible story. I know. I, I know. It's really this tough. Is absolutely tragic. And it just goes to show, like, how important it is. It just really emphasizes what we saw, started at this case kind of talking about is that, like, we're very lucky to have freedom of speech. Um, yeah. And and here and and just i mean obviously someone can threaten you no matter what for the speech that you say but this is just horrible what a horrible story yeah it makes you wonder like will there ever be true justice about what happened or you know will the bodies or remains ever be found i mean that's a sad reality about this case in particular because it happened so long ago and as you mentioned sylvia the last remaining member of the family is now dead so Right, or at least the last known remaining mm. member. I mean, it's possible that the other ones are still alive. Well, that's true, you know, Obviously yeah. much older, you know, probably in their, what, 90s Somewhere now? Somewhere yeah. Maybe even in the hundreds, but, uh, you know, the likelihood is obviously if you haven't heard from them, it's not going to happen. Right. Right? Because if the kids were trying to protect the family, once the parents went away, you know, mm-hmm. why wouldn't they kind of... It's just horrible all around horrible. yeah and it's funny like even being from this general region of the country having gone to west virginia university i had never heard about this case so um it's very yeah. interesting i might have to take a trip down to fayetteville and see what i can discover darren um yeah you, you might have <laughs> with to. some of my college friends well guys let us know what you thought about this week's episode you can hit us up at j thrasher carpe darren you can find us everywhere our facebook group you can hit us up on patreon speaking of patreon darren one of uh one of our first shout outs today is from our good friend our new patreon supporter mesa yes. why don't you tell us all the amazing things that mesa said <laughs> in fact mesa i just wrote you this morning so uh great name by the way well f- she says first off i love you both so much i can't count how many times you've made me laugh cry or just drop my jaw in the middle of my work day thank thank goodness for masks or i'd look like a crazy person lol i know you usually say that you guys don't understand how someone could listen to your voices so much but i honestly find them soothing Mm -hmm. and hearing them brings me so much comfort and honestly she went up to tell us so much more including some kind words about grandfathers you know both of ours sort of passed away Mm. i just want to thank mesa personally for being a loyal and supportive patron we love you and a great fucking name because my goddaughter's name is mesa that's right um, spelled slightly differently her name is spelled m-e-i-s-a um but love the name and i think it's very pretty that's very cool mesa thank you for your message it's very heartwarming um darren not so heartwarming for me my shout out goes to david archuleta who oh, Lord. you may know as my future husband but he doesn't sure. know it yet um sure. his new single move in is out now he is also out um, so please buy or stream this song so that he and I can send our children to college. You know, every stream counts, every every cent counts towards um, our future family. So I just wanted to give, him a, give him a little plug yeah. here at the end of the show. So, Well, speaking of plugs, and I don't know how much more you want to listen to, Dave, to David Archuleta mm-hmm. talk, but... Right now, get 15% off our Patreon if you subscribe annually. This means no monthly building. You just subscribe for a year up front, and you get everything from the past, the present, and yeah. the future. If you already signed up for Patreon, thank you times uh, literally a billion gajillion. We appreciate <laughs> that you support the show and keep it going every single week. We love you guys. Go to patreon.com slash shaken and disturbed. And we have a new, <clears throat> excuse me. We have a new NMR, not murder-related, episode up now. You're going to hear a lot of updates, including what I scarfed down my throat before (laughs) discussing this solder uh, murder. And if that's not sexual enough for you, just 
subscribe annually and get 15% yeah. off our Patreon there so you, you can get these NMR episodes. Oh yes. my god. Now, if and I'm sure everyone what you're hearing right now Darren is everyone rushing to Patreon mm-hmm. to see what you scarf down. Getting their credit cards out. That's, That's right. right. Everyone <laughs> wants to know what's Darren's scarfing. I hear it. That's I right. hear it. Well, Thank you all so much for this yes. week and for listening. And we will hear you, listen to you, see you. Neither of those things. You're going to hear us and listen to us in a week from now. Bye. Love you, Johnny Boy. Love you too. Bye. Bye. Bye.